0: Hi, and thanks for tuning in to episode 5 of the Last Palabra podcast, my weekly attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information in and out of my head for you all to listen to. This week, we'll talk about the most bizarre and awesome sport I've found conspiracy theories and the positive momentum in all things climate change. Welcome to another episode of my weekly podcast, The Last Palabra. I'm Jamie Coles, and I'm going to guide you through a week inside of my head. Firstly, though, a small housekeeping issue. My friend Matt will be joining me for a midweek rugby special episode where we'll be talking about all of the matches in the first round of the 2019 Rugby World Cup taking place in Japan, as well as a look at some of next week's fixtures. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Also, don't forget, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram where I'm the Last Palabra. Do the liking and sharing thing, please. So, I don't know whether it's having now worked three weekends in a row or the days are getting shorter now, the autumn's creeping in or what, but lately I've had this weird feeling of needing to take back control of my time. I don't want to complain. Uh, Some people work split shifts, seven day working weeks for minimum wage. But, I've worked the past three weekends, uh, one world superbikes, two MotoGPs, with just like a day or so during the week off. So, I'm working six day weeks, and that single day is, because I'm working, that single day is like dedicated to washing clothes, cleaning, shopping, food prep. Like, doesn't leave much time for anything else. Similarly, in the evenings, I feel lately all I do is sort of come home from work, eat dinner, watch Netflix, I go to bed. Repeat, you know, (laughs) it's maybe it's an issue with prioritizing or organizing my own time Maybe it's something that I'm doing wrong But it feels like I've just got no time for any of these stupid little things I want to do like teaching myself to draw or taking photos or just just this kind of wasting time, you know (sighs) Maybe I'm just becoming an adult and that's what adult life is As a result, I kind of feel like I've not really got control of my time or at least control over what I do with my time and I've seen this kind of, like, it's, it's starting to come out in other areas, like, you go to a restaurant, for example, and you order Coke, and they're like, is Pepsi okay, and it's like, god damn it, you know, I want to have control over something here, even if it's the drink that I have, like, it's the same drink, okay, Pepsi, they're more or less the same, you know, but it's just that that feeling of having control over something, and again, I'm not complaining, I'm fine, but it's just something I've noticed lately, and as this podcast is the dumping ground for my thoughts in my head, I was like, why don't I try and get it out of here? So I kind of began to make an effort to celebrate what can be controlled, what I can be in control of. And there are some simple ways of rebelling against this sort of routine or whatever forces that are put on you, which most of us do have control of when you kind of think about it. I have control, for example, of when I get up. But Jamie, you might ask, surely if you have to be at work for 9am, that dictates what time you get up. True, it dictates the latest I can get up. But it's me who decides on how early I get up. But shouldn't you be sleeping seven to eight hours? Yes, ideally. But, you know, it's me who decides how early I go to bed as well. Um, It's it's something I can have control over. What to eat for breakfast. If I choose to eat breakfast at all, that's something else I have control over. Maybe today I choose to fast until 3pm. Choose to read or choose to sit on Twitter, choose to sit down on a Monday night and record a podcast, choose the lift or the stairs. There are all these choices that are available to us on a, an almost daily basis. Choice, once you start looking for it, is all around us. But one of the things that a lot of us do, myself included, is is we drift. We drift through letting decisions be made for us, even by ourselves. You know, The force of habit is allowing ourselves to make a decision for us without even knowing we're doing it choice over how you react to something is something else you know someone cuts you off in traffic you get angry but you don't have to get angry that's a choice as well maybe a colleague pisses you off at work and you choose to say fuck it instead of just letting it bother you in his book the subtle art of giving a fuck mark manson says real serious lifelong fulfillment and meaning have to be earned through the choosing and managing of our struggles in luke reinhardt's book dice man where he allows the role of the dice to make his decisions in life he says it's the way man chooses to limit himself that determines his character. A man without habits, consistency, redundancy, and hence boredom, is not human. He's insane. But whilst Reinhardt's lurid and undoubtedly immoral narrative suggests that routine and boredom are some kind of illness, and that handing over your life to fate or the roll of a dice may be a way of liberating yourself from that monotony, he's not really talking about handing over control to the dice. If you don't know the book... Basically, what he does is he says, I will do this if the dice give me an odd number. And if they don't, I'll do something else. Or one will be this, two will be another option, three will be another option, four will be another option. And so what Reinhardt forces us to do is to create and recognize the choices available to us. In an interview he did with author Danny Wallace a few years back, Reinhardt, who's actually called George Cockroft, says that I often tell people just writing down options, you don't even have to roll the die. If you create six options, five of which are things that you wouldn't normally do, then you're already opening up as a person. All of a sudden you think, wait a minute, these are things I've often thought about doing but never do, and I can do them. I can actually do them if I want. There's an exhilaration in people discovering the possibilities of life they haven't considered before. So, recognising or searching out the choices available to you there, ready to be made, is what liberates us from this routine, from this feeling of everything's kind of predetermined for us. What gives us back the control of our lives is knowing that there's a choice. Of course, the idea of free will itself is eternally under scrutiny. Is it actually us that decide to do something? Where does the idea to do something actually come from? Do we decide to think of doing something before deciding to do it? How do we decide to decide to think of doing that before deciding to do it? Think of a cat. Where did the idea to think of a cat come from? Me, right? But where did I take that idea from? Did I debate the decision to think of thinking of a cat? Or did I just think of it? Where did that thought come from? Try it. Next time you have a thought, should you be the kind of person to have thoughts, have a think about if you chose to have that thought or not. Then have a long, hard think about whether you have control over your thoughts. And this brings us into some really serious issues into question here. Because should somebody decide to rob a bank... We'd have to explore where the decision to decide to rob a bank arose. I mean, can we hold someone accountable for their decision to act on a thought that they can't explain the origin of? Can we, for certain, say that the person chose to think about robbing a bank before deciding to decide to do it? Or did the idea just arise, as they often do? Of course, as far as the law is concerned, we have to act on or you know, punish that decision to act. But you have to think about how that person decided to decide to decide to rob the bank, and how did they decide that? It's a dilemma. An experiment was done into this way back in 1964, the results of which have fascinated us ever since. As humans, we like to think we have control over our fate. Of course, two German scientists monitored the electrical activity uh, of a dozen people's brains, and of course, back then it was kind of like these, you know, the sticky things on a head and an uh, electrical readout on paper. 1964 you know like a shower cap i guess with like a you see them in the films um the participants sat in a chair took neatly in a in metal booth all on their own and they just had one task their task was to flex a finger on their right hand as often as they they fancied over and over tapping the table sometimes up to 500 times a visit the idea was that they wanted to search for signals in the participants brain that proceeded each time they decided to tap and at that time researchers knew how to measure brain activity that occurred in response to events out out in the world um when they hear a song for instance or, or look at a photograph but no one had figured out how to isolate the signs of someone's brain actually initiating an action deciding to do something what they found is that in the milliseconds leading up to the finger taps the brain scan output showed like a wave of brain activity that arose for about a second like a drum roll of firing neurons and it ended in this abrupt crash and a tap of the finger this flurry of neuron activity which the scientists called Bereitschaft's potential or readiness potential they believed was the brain getting ready to create a movement a voluntary movement tapping the finger that's to say that the squiggly lines on the page were the brain deciding to make the decision to send a message to the finger to tap 20 years later psychologist benjamin libet 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 used the Bright Shaft potential uh, idea to make the case that not only does the brain show signs of making a decision before the person acts, but incredibly, the brain starts working, the wheels start turning before the person even consciously decides to do it. The way he did this was that he repeated the experiment before, the finger tapping with the, the brain sensors, uh, but he asked his participants to watch like a, a, a clock, a really accurate clock. With you know r- less than a second kind of measurements on it, and they could remember the moment that they realized they were making decision. You know th- when they thought I'm going to tap my finger now, they could say when it was. The results showed that while the barraf potential started to rise about 500 milliseconds before the participants performed an action, they reported their decision to make that action only 156 milliseconds before. The brain evidently decides to to the movement before the person themselves consciously decides to, before they're even aware that a decision has taken place, Libet concluded. Suddenly, our choices, even just deciding to tap a finger, these all seem to be made for us before we even know a decision is being made. And perhaps there is something beyond us making choices on our behalf, and even if we do feel duped into having made these choices, is our brain acting for us, before we even know that it's acting. To many scientists, it seemed implausible that our conscious awareness of an act, of a decision is just an illusionary afterthought. Researchers questioned Libet's experimental design, including the precision of the tools used to measure brain waves and the accuracy of which people could actually say that they were making a decision. But the flaws were hard to pin down. Until 2010. When a researcher at the National Institute of Health and Medical Research in Paris, Aaron Sugar, who was gathering tons of data on the just general background activity of our brains and he came up with another idea now neuroscientists apparently know that people uh, to make any type of decision our neurons need to gather evidence for, for each option much like we do if we're deciding to buy a, a car for example we might go online and look at different car reviews um and and decide on which car's the best one for us similarly our neurons are gathering information Uh, on the various options to tap the finger, not to tap the finger. Uh, to Tap the finger now, tap the finger later, I don't know. And the decision is reached when a group of neurons accumulates evidence past a a certain threshold, a kind of tipping point. And much of this data is gathered from the outside world. For example, if we look out the window and see the grey skies, that is probably enough information to tip us into deciding to take our umbrella with us today because it might rain. But Libet's experiment, Sugar pointed out, provided subjects with no such external cues. They just tap their finger when they wanted to tap the finger. They acted whenever the moment struck them. These spontaneous moments, Sugar reason, must have coincided with a haphazard kind of ebb and flow of the participant's brain activity. Remember, Sugar had spent years just having brains, scanning people's brains, and he found that even when they're not doing anything, there's kind of peaks and troughs of brain activity. And so he says they would have been more likely to tap their fingers when their motor system happened to be closer to a threshold for a movement initiation, when this kind of, when the brain neuron activity had peaked before it troughed. So what Libet thought was the brain making a decision to decide to tap the finger was actually just the background noise, the peaks and troughs of neuron activity that are always going on in our brain anyway. And instead of people's brains deciding to move their fingers before they knew it, as Libet thought, what sugar thinks happened was it actually meant that this noise in people's brains sometimes happened to tip the scale because there was nothing else to base the choice on and that saved us from this endless indecision when forced with an arbitrary task. Sugar and two Princeton researchers repeated a version of the experiment. To avoid unintentionally cherry-picking brain noise, they included a control condition at which people didn't move at all, so they could still register the the brainwaves peaking and troughing, if you like. An artificial intelligence classifier allowed them to find at what point brain activity in the two conditions diverged. If Libet was right, that should have happened about 500 milliseconds before the movement. But the algorithm couldn't tell any difference until about 150 milliseconds, which, remember before, was when participants reported they knew they were going to move. In other words, people's subjective experience of a decision, what Libet's study seemed to suggest was just an illusion, appeared to match the actual moment that their brain showed them making a decision. Whilst all of these are just theories... Astrophysicist Sean Carroll points out that people who question the existence of free will don't have any trouble making choices. John Searle has joked that people who deny free will when ordering at a restaurant should just say, just bring me whatever the laws of nature have determined I will get. In his book, The Big Picture, Carroll talks about the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who coined the term Cartesian theatre which is to describe the supposed mental control room of a tiny people who, who gather in all the input from our sensory organs and access our memories and send instructions to the various parts of our bodies and make our decisions for us, much like in the film Inside Out. Whilst Carroll presents several physics-based theories about free will, all the way down to the, the microscopic idea of determinism, in which he says that the universe has to function within strict quantum physics rules and everything is already determined, or at least the limit of, of the number of things that could possibly happen is decided and he talks about laplace's demon which is a theory by laplace in the 1800s where a person or a demon who knows the precise location and momentum of every atom in the universe their past and future values for any given time are entailed they could be calculated could calculate using the laws of science and physics exactly what could happen next of course as carol points out that's all very microscopic we can't do that it has no real impact on us Um, because we can't know the exact location momentum of every atom in the universe. And therefore, who cares? What we are trying to do is construct an effective understanding of human beings, not of electrons and nuclei. Given our lack of complete microscopic information, the question we should be asking is, does the best theory of human beings include an element of free choice? Carol concludes, thinking of the collections of atoms we call people as rational agents capable of making choices seems to be a pretty good theory. and like, like One likely to remain useful for a long time to come, or at least that's what he chooses to think, and I think we should too. It's important to remember that physicists, philosophers, uh, neurosurgeons, psychologists, many, many people are working hard to prove that we have free will. Whether we have it or not, at least if we believe we have it, it's just fair to us rec- to recognize the decisions and choices that we do have control over, and perhaps it will just make us feel a little bit happier. Whilst last week, several hundred people descended on Area Fifty One to see the aliens. Did you see this? Uh, that allegedly held captive there these aliens. They had this motto of "You can't st- they can't stop all of us." Speaking about the government, if you like, um, I don't think they achieved anything in Area Fifty One. I don't know. Uh, But there have been recent reports that in the era of fake news, that conspiracy theories are on the rise, or at least it seems that way. Now, I like a conspiracy theory, simply because it forces us to look at the world in a different, sometimes more creative, sometimes more bizarre way. It's good to remind ourselves to question the given narratives or societal norms from time to time. Also, it's not a bad idea to remember that some conspiracies turn out to be true such as the infamous uh, MKUltra mind control experiments where the US government was dosing people with LSD, or that the Nixon administration had John Lennon under FBI surveillance, or even the revelation that the likes of Edward Snowden, you know, the sort of leaks that the government are actually watching us. Whilst conspiracy theories were once stuck in kind of like niche radio shows or magazines or books, the internet, and particularly YouTube or social media, has made the spreading of conspiracy theories easier than ever before. For example, let's take Pizzagate. Did you hear this? The theory that Washington elite engaged in child sex trafficking in the, from the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizzeria, which 9% of the American population believed to be true, and actually it led to a man investigating, in inverted commas, the allegation, and he ended up shooting a rifle inside a pizza restaurant in Washington. Similarly, 19% of the US population believe that the government is using chemicals to control them. Many more believe that the government could control the weather. And let's not forget the lunar landing conspiracies, as well as the lunar structure conspiracies, which claim there are people living in colonies on the moon. There are 9-11 conspiracies, there are uh, Princess Diana conspiracies, and Madeline McCann conspiracies, there are conspiracies that Barack Obama has an African birth certificate. It seems there are conspiracies about almost... Almost everything, Um, and it's a bit of out-the-box thinking, uh, you know, a lot of it may turn out not to be true, but you never know. A lot of it is kind of aimed at subverting the government, or governments, and I guess kind of understandably, as governments seem to hide a lot of things from their people, which they probably have good reason for as well, you know. It's not the first time, however, that people have felt that conspiracies were on the rise in 1964, the New York Times said conspiracy theories had grown weed-like in this country. In 1994, the Washington Post declared, it's the dawn of a new age of conspiracy theory. And in 2004, the Boston Globe stated that, we are in the golden age of conspiracy theory. But it's probably a pretty easy to figure out why. In 1964, televisions penetrated the mass market. There was radio in every house and more radio programming than ever before. People were exposed to the idea of conspiracy theories. In 1994, the SMS text message began to spread as mobile phones began to become more available to the masses, shall we say, as well as email becoming available in a larger number of offices and workplaces. Conspiracies had a new way of spreading. And of course, in 2004, we had the rise of the internet, and well, I probably don't need to explain that. In recent years, though, we've changed the way we use the internet, or maybe the way the internet uses us. As we're now bombarded with memes, videos, social media, all kinds of conspiracy theories appearing, trending, disappearing within a 24-hour period. And as they're always on the internet, they can stay alive for longer and easily be accessible and resurrectable at any moment. They can now reach further into the population and receive more attention. Also, with the internet, it's made it easier for conspiracy theorists to communicate amongst themselves, as well as just the general curious people, such as myself, maybe, to get a bit more involved, too, than maybe I would have done before. It's just easier to reach out to someone on Twitter about a conspiracy than than it is to go to the library and check out a book, or go into the newspaper, you know? And so what's being done to combat this, assuming that it needs combating at all? YouTube is expanding an experimental tweak to its recommendation engine that's intended to reduce the application of conspiracy theories to the UK market. It was something they did in January this year. They rolled it out in the in the States, um, saying that they were making changes to limit the spread of conspiracy theory, content, junk science, they call it, and bogus claims about historical events, following sustained criticism of how the platform accelerates damaging clickbait. They call this uh, junk content or borderline content, saying that it's stuff that, it toes the line of what's acceptable in sort of content policies, but in practice it means stuff like videos that make nonsense claims about the earth being flat or lies about historical events such as 9-11 terror attacks or, or maybe they promote harmful, junk, bogus miracle cures, you know, for serious illnesses. So they can all be filed under misinformation or snake oil, if you like. But of course, to YouTube, this kind of junk content's been very, very lucrative. The Snake oil sells, you know? And as a consequence, uh, Google's commercial imperative is to... They, they they want like to make it look like they're doing something, but they're earning money from the adverts and stuff, you know? So... If they keep people watching these kind of videos, they're gonna keep making money off the adverts. Of course, none of it's really a problem. It gives people ad revenue, it provokes relatively healthy discussion, and as long as it's not taken too far, I don't think it can do too much harm. Of course, extremist behaviour such as the, the shooter in the pizza restaurant can occur. So it's up to either the creators of such messages, I think Alex Jones was heavily involved in that one, or indeed the platforms which enable them to take, they need to take some, some responsibility in all of this. A flat earth or a government weather control conspiracy theory may be mostly harmless, Conspiracy theories around vaccines have proven to be dangerous as they give voices against vaccination. These voices seem to drown out the voices of common sense now and we've seen almost extinct illnesses such as measles on the rise again. This year the World Health Organization declared the anti-vaccination movement a top 10 health threat after a 30% rise in measles across the world including in countries where the virus had been virtually eliminated. I find this really sad that we're living in a time where information is so readily available to us, and we can be so, so ignorant. Vaccine resistance movements are as old as vaccines themselves, but misinformation was particularly fueled when in 1998, and you probably know this, it is very infamous. And now retracted and debunked study that's the main thing, right? This study has been debunked, but people are running with it. It's so ingrained in their brains, and now the, the lie, the myth perpetuates itself. And it's become so common knowledge that people believe it, you know, this myth by this uh, study, sorry, by Dan, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, now completely debunked and even retracted, wrongly linked the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine with autism. In recent years, the anti-vaccine sentiment has coincided with the the increase, the rise of fake news and a general disregard for science. In the United States, there have been outbreaks in in 30 of the states, including New York and Washington where officials have declared public health emergencies. And in California, they're trying to bring in laws that make it almost obligatory for children to be vaccinated. Of course, much to the outrage of of anti-vax parents. Measles outbreaks in the US and Europe have been declared emergencies. But experts warn that the consequences of the anti-vaccination movement could be most acutely felt in lower-income countries when the Philippines, for example, where there have been deaths already because of measles. These are preventable diseases, you know. but they're more likely to kill in densely populated cities with poorer healthcare and infrastructure. And all of this comes from misinformation and fake news that's readily available to us now thanks to the internet. Similarly, there's plenty of disinformation and just outright denialism of issues such as climate change, with President Trump even failing to recognise what is clearly going on. And this week, Swedish teen environment superhero Greta Thunberg staged her biggest Fridays for Future demonstration yet, you know, she's been doing these for a year now, she's been doing Fridays for Future, where she's encouraging people to, to bunk off school, bunk off work on a Friday, bunk off, to stage a protest on a Friday uh, in demonstration of of the, of the environment, what's going on with the environment, you know, to bring raise awareness was also the biggest climate strike in the history of the world, with a global attendance estimated about 4 million. And then she went to speak at the UN Climate Summit, and she accused world leaders of being too immature to face the facts, before adding, as menacingly as a teenage Swedish climate hero can, she said, we will not let you get away with this. Whilst teens are leading the way, and individuals are doing their bit, it would appear that some big businesses are starting to get on board too, and this is great news. Two sisters from Southampton, Ella, who's nine years old, and Caitlin McEwen, who's, who's seven. So Ella and Caitlin McEwen. They started a petition against Burger King and McDonald's using plastic toys in children's meals. And amazingly, it's worked with over half a million people signing the petition. Burger King has said they'll remove all plastic toys from their children's meals. The fast food chain says the move will save an estimated 320 tons of plastic waste every year. What are they going to do with all the plastic? They're going to use it to create play areas and restaurant items, including interactive trays. McDonald's has said that from next month, they will give customers the choice of swapping plastic toys in the Happy Meals for bags of fruit. And the next year, they'll be able to swap toys for books. With that initiative, as well as a rollout of paper straws, uh, McFlurry plastic lids and plastic lids from the, the salad bowls and the drinks being done away. McDonald's says it will reduce plastic waste by whopping 10,005 metric tons a year. Burger King UK chief executive Alistair Murdoch says, we're making a start. This is a step in the right direction. And He says, if it makes other competitors move their practices forward, that can only be a good thing. And I agree. You know, it only takes Burger King to do it, McDonald's to do it. KFC will follow. Uh, who else is that? I don't know. Whoever else there is, they'll follow. And it, you know, it perpetuates. Burger King's also installing what they're calling amnesty bins in all of their UK restaurants for people to drop off. Uh... Plastic meal toys, including those given away with like sweets or children's magazines or any any plastic toys, from even from McDonald's. You can take them to a Burger King, leave them in these bins, and they will recycle them into children's play areas. Burger King, McDonald's, these are some of the biggest names in capitalism. If they can take corporate responsibility over what's happening to the environment, or at least starting to move things forward and having a more positive impact, this is huge. This is a huge step forward. Also, as an avid reader, I can't get more on board with them giving kids books instead of stupid little plastic toys. It's really, really great news. And who would have thought that our climate revolutionary leaders would be a 16-year-old girl, a 9-year-old girl, and a 7-year-old girl? We have hope for the future generations. Let's hope that they can convince us adults to help them keep making it happen. And finally... I want to introduce you to a bizarre sport that I came across. The bizarre world of combat juggling. Uh, This is a sport that I stumbled across on Reddit. And whilst I love weird and wonderful sports, uh, think kabaddi, chess boxing, shin kicking, look them up. This one really grabbed my attention. The aim of combat juggling is to continue juggling three juggling clubs whilst trying to cause your opponent to make an error and not juggle his three clubs, as well as fending off his attacks. It can be played one on one where you get two jugglers facing sort of head to head juggle combat. So one's juggling, the other's juggling, and they need to make the other one drop their clubs. Or it can be played in teams. So teams are like five, and whoever, whichever side's left still juggling, wins. It can even be done in like a multi juggler combat free for all where there's, I don't know, 12 people all juggling in a juggler juggle combat arena. I don't know, it it, it just looks like it's staged in a hall or in a park or whatever. Um, and the last one, still juggling wins. Like, it looks ridiculous at first. But after a while, it begins to look like a lot of fun. And it made me think, what other kind of normal hobbies could we could we combatize? Could we turn into violent combat sports? Um, seriously, go Google it. You will not be sorry. Combat juggling. That's all for episode five. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned during the week when Matt will be joining me to talk about the first round of the Rugby World Cup and look forward to the second round. And as ever, I would love to hear from you. Reach out on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook where I am, of course, the last palabra.